When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Neil Preston, and you are listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, with the show. Do you have the time to listen to me whine about nothing and everything all at once, diggers? I bet you do. And that's why you're here. Welcome to another edition of Deeper Digs. So, I have to start off with some bad news. Our dear friend and the original voice of our openings for Rock and Roll Archaeology, as well as this show, has passed on to the other side. His name, if you didn't know, was Dennis Gordon, and it always put a smile on my face to hear his big, booming voice announce the introductions. He'd been sick for a while, and it was just time for him to go. He he went on his terms as best as anyone could. Uh, We are, of course, sorry and heartbroken, and uh, just thought... I could take a moment of your time and let's all remember Dennis uh, with one last uh, listen to uh, his old introduction. Um, I know it's like we are, um, I know it's like we're starting the show all over again here, but please uh, indulge me uh, and all of us here uh, at Pantheon Podcasts as we send Dennis off in style one last time. Pantheon Podcasts presents Deeper Digs in Rock, part of the Rock and Roll Archaeology Project. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. Well, that that makes me very sad. Um, he will be missed. Like I said, Dennis had been sick for some time. Uh, we'd hoped to get him back in the studio one last time, but it just um, it just couldn't happen. He was just too ill to perform. Uh, and we seriously needed to update some of the information now that we are Pantheon Podcasts and some of the social media links were old. So we decided it was time for a change. We had to move on from Dennis as our voiceover actor. Uh, we reluctantly did so. Uh, last week's Deeper Digs um, was the first without Dennis on as the intro. Uh, I find it rather cosmic that we made this change um, just a few days after he passed away. Uh, Now, 
of course, you get to hear from host of Festival Nation podcast, Marla Davies, uh, as our new host. And we are very happy to have her, uh, even if the circumstances seem a bit weird. Godspeed, Dennis. Uh, I am sure you are dancing the night away in your very own version of heaven. Oh, okay. Well, as they say, the show must go on. Today, we have part two of our back-to-back Bay Area music series. Last week, we had the privilege of speaking with Adam Dubin, director of Murder in the Front Row, the San Francisco Bay Area thrash metal story. This week, we take a look at the other side of what I think is the same coin— Uh, One of the coolest elements of thrash was that in its DNA existed elements of punk. Many of the big thrash acts have covered a punk song or two. Uh, Megadeth's excellent Anarchy in the UK comes to mind. Uh, Plus, Metal Mike from Angry Samoans is credited as the guy who coined the term heavy metal in the first place in a review for Rolling Stone magazine uh, back in 1971. You see what I mean here? So at almost the same time that this thrash genre uh, was being invented here in the Bay Area, the punk scene was also flourishing. In fact, punk has a few years on thrash, um, but it also takes longer to mature into the mainstream, uh, for better or worse. So its arc is longer and may actually be a little more influential overall, but thrash metal definitely has the record sales. Today, I have the pleasure to get deep into the punk side of things with Corbett Redford, director of the fine documentary on the subject called Turn It Around, The Story of East Bay Punk. Released in 2017, uh, so it can be found on Amazon Prime Video, or if you like, please go to eastbaypunk.com to see all the options on where to catch the pick. So, like Murder in the Front Row, this is really a love letter to the scene, and not just a listicle of bands and the usual rise and fall storyline that we get in most rock docs. Um, There is a lot of love and authentic passion for those times. And Corbett was there, and he was obviously picked because he has the same love as he did as an 18-year-old in the scene. He was tapped by the guys from Green Day who acted as executive producers, uh, and all three are in the film. But that's just a start. Uh, It is not East Bay Punk starring Green Day. It's far more than that. In fact... 
at almost three hours, just about everyone who had a role from the beginning at the Mabuhay Gardens early in the city uh, to the mecca of East Bay punk, the all-ages 924 Gilman in Berkeley, which is still open, are pretty much included in the film. From the Dead Kennedys and the Avengers, all through uh, to NoFX, Offspring, yes, yeah, I, I know they're from Orange County, but they played Gilman a bunch of times, Rancid, and everyone in between. Um, Corbett hits them all, along with scenesters and characters you may or may not know, but will love hearing from, and perhaps are the real stars of this picture. Plus, it is narrated by uh, punker legend himself, Iggy Pop. How can you go wrong? It's authentic and thorough. It's a great and full explanation of this scene that is still thriving. Well, minus the pandemic over in the East Bay. Hopefully, all those kids can get back over to their community soon. I expect a new explosion once they do. In the meantime... Let's get to know the director of Turn It Around, the story of East Bay punk diggers. Let's meet Corbett Redford. Corbett Redford, welcome to uh, Deeper Digs in Rock today. Uh, thank you for having me, Christian. Oh, we're very excited to talk about uh, your uh, your documentary on the uh, East Bay punk scene called Turn It Around, the story of East Bay punk. Um, so I guess the first question is, you know, what, what made you decide that, you know, we needed to get granular on the punk scene and, <laughs> and, and, and get, to, I, you know, I mean, everybody knows the New York story. And, and of course, you know, they probably know the London story, but, but the, you know, the East Bay story is kind of a, it's, it's a mishmash of a lot of different things. I think, I think it's probably the most eclectic of those, uh, those bastions of punk, you know, say New York, London, L.A., and San Francisco, where all this stuff comes from, wouldn't you say? Absolutely. I mean, I, I wouldn't say that uh, without sounding, you know, like a California exceptionalist. I think it's because, you know, the Bay Area is is kind of densely cultural, you know? Yeah. You've got all sorts of things melding here. Yeah, and, yeah, and uh, you've got you've got these bridges that separate at the same time. So there is this separation, but there is this community. Yes. And you you know, you what 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 happens in San Francisco is very different than what happens in Oakland, and what happens in Oakland's very different than what happens in Berkeley, and yeah. and and as you go further out, uh, yeah. it gets even weirder, right? <laughs> Where I'm from, I'm from further out. So <laughs> Right. It does get weirder, but you know, I think that it was important to me, and it was important to the producers. Green Day, mm -hmm. um, that was the scene that that changed their lives, that that helped make them the people that they are, mm -hmm. and it did the same for me. Uh, it, you know, you coming from you know ten, fifteen minutes outside of Berkeley, you're not coming from Berkeley, you're coming from a place where you know maybe 
you say you use certain words that you shouldn't when you're young or you you know you you're, you're you're a certain way you know and then you come out to this place where a lot of the kids their parents are professors or you know there's like uh older people who are at the club who are like talking to you like you're a human being you know yeah a, it, instead of just some kid right yeah it's a trip right so you go out and suddenly like you're getting this this education in the world so um i i think you know, I think Billy Joe said it best. He said, you know, you can we can tell the story of Green Day a million times, but I'd rather like tell our story through the story of, of everybody who we came up with. You know, that, that tells you the, the larger story of maybe why I mean you look at it look at their um you know Woodstock performance the the that they did. Was it uh, yeah, 90, 99. 99, 99, yeah. you know uh and, and, and with the mud and the mud thrown at them yeah, and all of that. When, if you look at the band Isocracy in our documentary um, you know, they would go out and they would get dumpsters full of paper, shredded paper, and throw it out into the audience and just cause this chaotic, anarchic, you know, melee. And you kind of see like, oh, okay, it that's, why did they do that at Woodstock? Well, they do that because that's where they come from, right. you know? Right. And, and so, you know, just, it's, uh, I think we did it because it was important to us. You know, we got granular. We knew that the subject was esoteric. We hoped that there would be enough kind of uh, humor and inspired pieces and, and I guess drama in it, but really, um, you know, of course we want people to watch it, but I think we made it for the people involved to honor the people involved, to honor the, the, the people who aren't in the arenas, you know, to, to the people who book the shows and, and draw the flyers and, you know, uh, write the fanzines and create the media, you know, uh, the people that, uh, you don't have a scene if you don't have all those people, you know, no, it, it, it is a, a, a subculture, uh, akin to, uh, you know, uh, the Grateful Dead or uh, the metal scene uh, or what have you. Uh, it is as deep and as wide uh, as uh, as any uh, 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 rock and roll subculture. So so you, you know, were picked to put this thing together. Uh, you know, the obvious question is, why you? <laughs> um, well, let's see. Uh, I first saw Green Day in, I think, 1991. At the Berkeley Square, opening for the Cadillac Tramps, uh, mm. awesome Los Angeles yeah. band, and uh, kind of changed my brain. I just I had never seen people bounding into each other, and I knew them from high school. Um, uh, the bass player stuck up for me when I was getting bullied one time, you know, and like they were just kind of guys. Yeah, yeah Mike. Yeah, and mm. and 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 so uh, I don't know. I, I've, they've supported me in my creative endeavors over the years, and one day uh, Billy. Uh, wrote me and said, hey, man, I'm looking for this kind of, uh, uh, what do you call it, a Rosetta Stone of Green Day footage. Uh, uh, it's a backyard. It's like 1990. It's in Oakland. And just like the entire scene is there. In the audience, you see the people from Neurosis and NoFX. And like, you know, we're playing like in, in front of a big piece of sheet metal. And it's just like the crowd is full. And it's just that a live vibe, you know, mm -hmm. and he goes, do you know where to get it? And I, I knew where to get it. I think he knew I knew where to get it. <laughs> like, yeah, it's in uh, the movie. So you definitely knew where to get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so uh, and I I said, um, yeah, you know, I, I know where to get it. And I thought, well, you know, I know a few other archivists. I had never made a documentary before. I was in a, I've been in a satiric folk band on and off for 25 years, made a lot of music videos, published books. Um, you know, and, and been an actor and, and acted in films and, and directed music videos. So I, um, I knew where to get the footage. 
But I thought to myself, I know a few other archivists. And so I wound up compiling about 20 or 30 different old live Green Day videos, put it on a hard drive and delivered it to him. And he said, and this is fantastic. You know, hey, we were thinking uh, we're about doing a documentary of our history, our early history. Do you know anybody who could do it? And I had just gotten back from like a, a 40 date music tour. I was exhausted. I think I was out of work. And I just, I, I know that I'm, I'm good at production and I'm good at like, you know, writing and things like this. And I thought, I just said it. I said, yeah, me. And he goes, you're right. I'll talk to the band and, and let's meet tomorrow. And I think that they knew I had done so many kind of outrageous creative projects that they had helped support over the years. Mm. I think they knew like, oh, Corbett can do this. So, I mean, routinely Billy throughout the whole production would in interviews would say, we knew Corbett was the guy to do this. And I, I mean, I can only say it's probably because he knows that I'm organized and I'm patient, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and, uh, that, those are two important skills for a director. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially, you know, when you're, when you're, when you're dealing with like a lot of people's sacred stories, we interviewed 120 people for 500 hours. And you're talking about, you know, some of these people, you know, you got, you know, Miranda July, who, uh, I think she won the Palme d'Or at Cannes, and you know Michael Franti is multi-platinum artist. Tim Armstrong, Grammy award-winning, multi-platinum. You know Kirk Hemet. You've got all these, all these people. You know Larry from Primus. You know, like the, there are so many stars in this film that are that are different genres. You know who all who are all connected by Gilman. But then you've also got maybe uh, you know eighty of those people who, you know, all they've got is their sacred stories. Yeah. You know yeah. Uh, they 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 don't. They're not stars. They're not, you know, and and with that they're, also, they're still hand to mouth. Yeah, yeah, they're still hand to mouth, and I think, you know, that required compassion on my part. That required patience because if they're saying, "Hey, this is really all I've got. All I've got are my stories. All I've got are these memories, these photos that I'm going to give you," I I knew that it was a really big, um, it was a big deal, and um, I could, I think maybe the maybe Green Day knew that I could be empathetic and compassionate to those folks as, as we were part of the same community, you know, yeah. uh, I, I did a lot of community organizing in my past. So however it happened, I wound up getting to do it. And I think the production from beginning to end took a, uh, a little over four years. It, it was in, it was insane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's a, uh, it's a big movie. It's uh it's uh over two and a half hours long. Uh, and, um, uh, there, there's just uh, so many characters that are woven through the fabric of that, uh, and uh, so many bands, uh, so many uh, of these uh, side uh, characters um, that uh, that just, you know, w without them in it, you're missing half of the story. It's not just about the bands. Uh, you know, uh, you, you get uh, like one of my favorites was uh, the kid Eggplant with uh, I think he, he created his own zine called uh, Absolute Zippo, right? Yep. yep. He, you know, Eggplant is really he's kind of a conduit for uh, for he was a conduit for Green Day. You know, he helped get them their first show at, at the club. And actually, then late years later, he did the same for me. These were, you know, Green Day at the time. They didn't sound very punk. I think we talk about that in the film. You do. They're very poppy. Yeah. 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 They're very poppy, you know, and they had a hard time getting a, a show. Uh, eventually they got a show and Eggplant was one of the people who they were playing in, in uh, his backyard. You know, he, he gave them a gig, you know, it's like, I don't know. Eggplant was, is definitely one of those people who, uh, 
uh, he's one of those community people who is super important to the story. You know, Aaron Comet Bus, Time yeah, Magazine. That was calls another one, yeah, Aaron Comet Bus, yeah. yeah. I mean, for as obscure, you know, or esoteric as he is, Time Magazine calls him the Kerouac of punk, you know? Yeah. I mean, these are, these are all, um, everybody has their own, gosh, there's just so many people. Uh, there's, there's, obviously, the place is so special to me. But, yeah, um, I mean, it, 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 20, uh, 20,000 photos and flyers that we scanned, uh, you know, uh, 300 uh, live performances we transferred, and over 500 hours of interview footage for 120 interviewees. So, I mean, it was an immense undertaking. I think Green Day, at a certain point, they just said, get it all. You know, preserve this history. Preserve this important, this history that's important to us. Let's preserve it. So we got it all. And then we were like, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do with this? You know? <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Well, let's start it uh, at the beginning. I mean, um, you know, uh, you know, the the punk scene. For for me, what, what I usually talk to people uh, about when, when, when the subject comes up and I get asked, you know, what do you think about it? Uh, hey, it, it holds a special place in my heart. Uh, there, there was a time uh, growing up in L.A. where it, it was very meaningful to me. Uh, you know, hey, I, I remember uh, the day I got, uh, uh, you know, never mind the Bullocks, here come the Sex Pistols, um, you know, a life-changing experience of Clashes, uh, albums, and, and that sort of stuff. Um, and, uh, you know, and then, then you begin to learn about New York and CBGBs, the Ramones and all that. So I guess, uh, you know, the, the question is that, you know, um, uh, you know, kind of, it de definitely starts in New York, uh, moves to, to London. Uh, there's this small moment of, uh, this awakening and then it kind of, it's like about a five or six year period. And then it kind of goes away and nobody really makes it big. Uh, at that first early stage. And that's my point, is that when I when I talk about punk, the first thing I tell people is like, well, it's probably the longest gestating genre in rock music to ever get to that point where it gets big. And we're, we're talking like 20 years to get Well, there. I think Green Day was the biggest punk band. Right? It is. They are the biggest yeah. punk band. Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's there. They don't, they don't uh, hit until the mid nineties. Uh, right. right. You know, so, so that is, that's a, that's a 20 year arc. If, if you go to, you you know the CBGB's the London scene. I mean, we could go back to uh, you know your narrator uh, Iggy Pop yeah. uh, from the Stooges yeah. and uh, and the MC5 out of Detroit, sure. who we think we call really the first real punk bands. Yeah, that was the idea behind us getting him to be the narrator because he's he's it. He's ground yeah. zero. Yeah, he's you know? the grandfather. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, and it's so funny you say, you know, like it went from. I believe that it went to New York, went started in New York, and went to England. But there's always that bashing of heads, right? Yeah. And then it kind of went over to L.A. and San yeah. Francisco, right? Yeah. yeah. And you know, the, in the San Francisco scene, we thought it was early. It was important to show in our movie because it's like San Francisco is not the East Bay, like you said. You know, there's bridges separating the yeah. two. You know. And it was an artful scene. Uh, Bill Graham didn't like punk. You know, he just, he he didn't like it until, I mean, what, he did the last Sex Pistols show, and it was just a disaster. Yeah, Winterland, yeah, January 14th, 1978. Yeah. Uh, that's the, it's the last <laughs> Sex Pistols show ever, right? We released some uh, extra and deleted scenes about Winterland on our Instagram, the East Bay Punk Instagram, and, and on our DVD Blu-ray. And there's this whole thing where Penelope Houston talks about um, I guess Richard Belzer, the comedian, was was the MC that night, and and 
you know, Bill Graham didn't like what he was saying out on stage and had some of his guards rough him up. And it was just, it was just chaos, you know? And, uh, what I think what, uh, the Sex Pistols ended with Iggy's No Fun. Is that right? Yeah, you know? they did. Yeah. That's the last song and, and they ever played. Like, yeah. You know, so it, it's just interesting because a lot of those East Bay kids would travel out from the suburbs. And I think, you know, Stephen DePace from Flipper and uh, Gary Floyd from The Dicks and all these people that we interviewed, um, you know, they saw Penelope Houston, the Avengers opened the show, the nuns played, and they just, but, but Stephen from Flipper and Gary from The Dicks said, that show spawned a million punk bands. You know, people came up from Los Angeles. They were mad because the Cestle, the, the pistols didn't hit L.A. that time, right? Yeah, I, they, I, I know some 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 of our hosts uh, uh, actually made the trip uh, up here. Right, yeah. right. So so that was a big deal, and I think that that spawned a lot there mm -hmm. in San Francisco. You know, mm -hmm. uh, and of course you have the Tubes, which were this kind of artful, maniacal, proto punk thing going on in San Francisco. Yeah. Yeah, you know, in, in a very, you know, they were they were just satiric in that way. Satirical, right? more classic yeah. rock uh, in presentation, sure. 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 Uh, you know, but but you know, I mean, the same thing could be said about the the early Stooges and MC Five. You know, they they right. don't have that rat a tat tat, uh, right. fast paced, high energy uh, rock sure. and roll. They're, they're 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 you know they're they're classic blues based bands uh you know that uh, that that are, are are in their in their moment you know this is the late 60s of course sure yeah, yeah. a lot of the people at the mabuhay gardens which was that you know the, the the center of punk in san francisco they despised the tubes they whenever they would come in they were just like to them they were rock stars you know yeah like bill graham you know <laughs> embraced them but they were like hey we're weird too you know we're like i guess the, the, we interviewed them for our film three of them and uh, they told us that they that Robin Williams auditioned to be in the tubes and they turned him down. I thought that was a, that was one of the best stories that I heard <laughs> during the whole thing. But well, yeah, thank so, God. Otherwise, he wouldn't have become uh, right, the Robin yeah, Williams. We all right. know and love right? Oscar, right. Emmy, Grammy winning. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So, so but imagine that. <laughs> I know <laughs> we definitely wanted to show that the East Bay punk scene wasn't created in a bubble that Green Day and Rancid and you know, all these bands just didn't appear out of nowhere. So we thought it was important to start with, you know, I remember Billy Joe, I, I said that I wanted to start out with um, um, the Fixin' to Die Rag by Country Joe and the Fish. Uh, you know, give me an F, you know, he's yeah. at the Woodstock, you know? Yeah. And he spells F-U-C-K, you know, and like he, you know, Billy's like, that's the first punk we're going to, we're going to, we have to get that song. We have to put that, you know, because the idea was that in Berkeley, there was already this butting of heads against Reagan. The 80s punks hated Reagan, right? Reagan was like, he was, every song was about him, you know? Yeah. And uh, California. And, and, to... and the hippies had to deal with him 20 years earlier uh, yeah. in, uh, in in uh, the 1960s, 66, 67. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he, came he sent in helicopters to yeah. gas people's park <laughs> campus. Yeah. yeah. So California, you know, especially the East Bay, you know. California the, Uber Alice. Right. Uh, right. <laughs> just, he was a governor, then he was the president. We did. Yeah. We dealt with him twice, you oh, know. Oh, and, horrible. And so it, it, there was this, I think there was just all of these things swirling. And suddenly there was all these kids being inspired by, like, the show at Winterland and, you know, uh, you know, being affected by, you know, Feinstein and Reagan and all of these people that were kind of shutting down youth culture. And then the need for Gilman arose, you know, mm -hmm. it, like, hey, we can't keep doing this in our garages, you know, right. like, you know, there, and so there was this 
you know, uh, benevolent benefactor, Tim Yohannan, who, you know, was uh, the, the founder of Maximum Rock and Roll and Kamala Parks. And actually, um, what, what is his name? He, he was uh, in Captain, he was in Captain Beefheart. Oh, uh, yeah, actually, that is um, uh, uh, Victor Hayden. He just passed on. Yes, yeah, years. yeah. Uh, actually, yeah. one of our hosts, uh, Pamela DeBar, uh, was very close with uh, with Victor because she she of course was close with Frank Zappa and Captain Beefheart. You know, there's a photo of her there in the in the film. I saw the yeah. film, and yeah. that was um, that was um, another amazing uh, composer who just passed, um, a a a Ailey uh, Ailey Willis. Mm -hmm. uh, she wrote September by Earth, Wind, and Fire. She wrote. Uh, she took that photo of Victor and Pamela okay. DeBear. Oh. Yeah, DeBear's. De De and, and so, uh, yeah, she was awesome to give that to us for our film. So, yeah, we wanted to show that Gilman didn't appear in a bubble, you know? So. No, no. And it's, um, you know, you, you mentioned something. I, I, want, I just want to go back to this for one second. And, and that is, uh, you know, the, the San Francisco geography itself is very unique. And it breeds, uh, you know, these unique little... Uh, subunits, subcultures, sub neighborhoods. Uh, it's less so today than perhaps ever before. Um, sure. But you know, even in the '60s, you know, the the hippies and the and the Berkeley free speech peeps, they yeah. didn't get along with each other either. Right. You know, um, so so and you mentioned that in in, in the film that uh, you know San Francisco is a unique place. It's a perfect place for uh, this sort of attitude. Uh, to uh, to uh, to grow up in, and it's been here for a long time, even way before uh, you know the punk scene or even the hippie scene. Well, you know, I Iggy, you know, he he came up in Ann Arbor, which was you know a very progressive and artful town, college town, right? And there were there was a cult, there was culture there, and so when we were writing his narration, we were you know he and I, I can't believe I can say these words because it makes me so. You know, I'm humbled by it. Yeah, you, yeah, you were writing words, and Iggy Pop is is speaking them. I, I'm but, sure that must have been really exciting. But then I wanted collaborating with him, where he, I wanted to make sure, like, I wanted to hear about what he had to say. He remembered Bill Graham. He he remembered, obviously. You know, he said, yeah, one time I was wandering through New York and. I was, you know, hungover, and I sat down on a park bench, and, and I bummed a cigarette from somebody next to me, and it, it was Bill Graham. <laughs> I, just, I just remember that. But but he was saying, I, I said, you know, in our in our movie, I think we say, you know, San Francisco is this catch-all for culture. Everybody floats that way as the is is like this place of of kind of community and prosperity and and hope. And I didn't want him to say that if he didn't feel that. And he said, yeah, I mean, even where I was, everybody, if you were weird, you floated that way. You know, you floated towards San Francisco. So the West, uh, the West is the best. Yeah, the West is the best. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exceptionalism. Right. right, <laughs> like, right. So he so he uh, even yeah, if we have to deal with Ronald Reagan. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out. 
because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Hey folks, Stefan Shirazi and Renee Richardson here from the Metallica Report. And we are proud members of the Pantheon podcast family, where the best of music and podcasts unite. We've got something pretty cool for you. We're giving away an exclusive Metallica merch package worth over $250. That's a whole lot of scary guys, skulls, M72, and other sought-after Metallica swag. And we've made it easy for you to win. Follow and share the Metallica Report, and you're in the game. Go to pantheonpodcast.com slash Metallica, enter your email, and hit that button to be entered to win. And just like that, you're eligible for our monthly exclusive Metallica merch package. And guess what, rockers? You can enter every month. So just do it. And while we love our global brothers and sisters, the lawyers won't let us ship outside the U.S. And now back to the program. So, so, so the um, you know you you mentioned the Mabuhay Gardens, where and, and that's kind of where the the punk scene here uh, actually kind of starts. And I think it also you know involves uh, uh, Jello Biafra and the, who's in the film uh, with the Dead yeah. Kennedys, right? Yes. Well, so well, a lot of people would tell you that Jello came a, a couple steps after that. It was like the Avengers and the Nuns and Crime. And then there was this kid named Jello who came around telling everybody before he had a band that he was going to have a band called the Dead Kennedys. And everybody was like, yeah, okay, we'll believe it when we see it. And then suddenly they became the biggest band out of the area, yeah. you know? Yeah. So, but this all happened so fast in like the course of a year or two, you know? Yeah. Um, some people would tell you that the birth of punk in the Bay Area happened in, in, in 76, 77 before the Mabuhe Gardens started hosting punk shows in a theater in Rodeo, which is where, what, uh, you know, 10 years later, Green Day comes out of. Right. So this is like, you know, uh, in our film, we talk about it. We have the people from from the Mabuhe scene, you know, Penelope from the Avengers and Ted from, they're all saying Rodeo, like going, going, going to Berkeley was like, we're on tour, but going to Rodale, like, <laughs> yeah. he didn't even know what this was, you yeah. know? Right. And uh, so, but Wes Robinson, before he did Ruthie's, you know, the, the whole crossover metal punk movement, he decided he was going to do punk shows out in an old abandoned theater in Rodeo. So technically, I, I think he got to jump on it. Uh, you know, like, like so people can debate me on that, you know, <laughs> like, uh, but, but. Uh, you know, you had the, the the art college out, out in San Francisco. You had a lot of people coming there. 
obviously I feel, and I'll, and I'll go out on a limb and say this, the early San Francisco punk scene to me is one of the most interesting punk scenes in the world, just because of the, the, how many different kinds of melding of, of arts yeah, and genres. Very, very eclectic. And, and even, uh, even so much so that almost at the same time, is another scene that coincides with uh, the timing, uh, and that is the thrash metal scene, which kind of yes. grows up out of there. And in fact, there's a, a, another film uh, that is documenting that period. And in, and there's a lot of characters that are in both films. That that yeah. that movie being called Murder in the First Row, uh, yeah. of which the, the the big difference to me between the two films is is Bill Graham liked them and he didn't like the punkers. Right, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> they would play at the uh, in San Francisco. They would play at the Omni, uh, whereas the 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 punkers would play at the On Broadway or the Mabuhay across the street. Mm -hmm. So a lot of times you would have metal people on one side of the street and punk people on the other side of the street, and then there would be battles. You know, yeah. It was, it was like you know, but then you would get shows like you know, Suicidal Tendencies and Slayer, and you know, and that's what you know, or DRI coming up. You know, there was all yeah. these. That you know, but but again, you know, I, I you know that's you know, at the time it seems yeah. that it's hard to you, you, they do seem very different. But but now with perspective, you look back and you think thrash metal and punk. There's a lot of similarities to this. It's it's true. I mean, I would say that I would say this that that the the thrash metal scene was far more badass. I mean, sure, you've got all these like punk kids in Berkeley and the the suburbs of San Francisco and, Ber and and suburbs of Berkeley and Oakland coming together. And yeah, they fought some skinheads. They, you know, they, they, they did some stuff like this, but they were, they were mostly just kids who wanted to come together who didn't, they didn't have a dense culture like, like San Francisco, yeah. you know, uh, going over there. And so I, I think that the, the, the metal scene was far more dangerous and, and fun. I mean, you know, there's a there's a fun element to danger, you know, yeah. whereas Gilman really was the first time that punk was given rules. Mm -hmm. Right. No drinking. No, yeah. no, no, drugs, no fighting. Yeah. No, no yeah. drugs. Yeah. No people no like vandalism. Stuff. Yeah. What? Yeah. The San Francisco scene was like, you got to be kidding me. Yeah. This is ridiculous. But guess what? 1986, that place opened. It's still open today. Right. right. You know, right. and and it's still there for for outcasts of all stripes who need a place to come together. You know, well, I, it reminded me a little bit of, you know, being from L.A., it reminded me of the early L.A. punk scene, which was far more eclectic until, you know, it got the, into the hardcore scene where it sure. got very masculine. And that's the difference is that the early punk scene and this this is a, a period of time and then it changes in L.A., whereas it seems in uh, in the East Bay punk scene, this continues on even to this day is it's it's got a much more fe feminine element to it it does have a feminine element and it has a kind of a kind of a fun danceable element i mean green day early on was love songs you know yeah and then operation ivy which was like political dance songs you know like ska songs you know uh um, there there was a, a definitely a a, a, a a feminine artful queer element there were there were a lot of, i mean a lot of people tell me that once the San Francisco scene, once the Avengers broke up and stuff, it kind of fizzled toward the end of the seventies. Uh, yeah. It, 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 uh, Weinstein and her husband mm. were closing clubs all over the place. That kid, Kevin Collins got kidnapped. So supposedly there were some punk kids around him when it happened. So 
punks were, you know, having to go into the shadows, you know? And so, yeah, it's super weird. I mean, some people are telling us these stories, you know, just, um, and so, yeah, these clubs were shuttering and, and uh, so Gilman became very necessary as, as a, as a, as a catalyst for culture, Mm -hmm. you know? Um, but you know, those rules turned a lot of people off initially. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. But, but, you know, and maybe, maybe that caused people to age out, you know, Uh, and and, and then you would always have, you know, new kids come and fill the void. Sure. Well, which is really what you want. Right. Right. (laughs) That sounds like marketing genius to me. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, it really is about, um, it's about youth culture, you know, and uh, punk, everyone's like, is punk dead? It's like, and not as, not as long as there are new people injecting new ideas into it. No. Yeah. 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 It's, it's, it's probably the, the, the closest to, uh, you know, the old adage they say about country music, you know, three chords in the truth. Right. Yeah. Yes. That's all you need. Yeah. <laughs> right. Right. So let, let me, let me, let's talk a little bit about, uh, uh, maximum rock and roll radio, uh, which I think was on KPFA. And I think that also had a lot to do with, uh, spreading the message, right? Completely. Uh, so that was originally in, uh, Berkeley and, or maybe it was in, it was in San Francisco that it moved to Berkeley to KPFA. Uh, it kind of, kind of went around, but initially kids would come to the, the hallways outside of the uh, of the recording of the radio show mm-hmm. and this radio show would go far and wide and then it got syndicated they would send the the tape of the radio show out to people and then uh the magazine emerged right and uh there was a compilation that came out of the radio show that had a newsprint zine inside of the record and that became issue one basically mm-hmm. and then that was this way for everybody to connect there would be scene reports in different cities you could find out what was going on there and you could trade tapes and and just suddenly the world got far less big you know yeah it became far more small right yeah. so it was it was in it was invaluable uh it, it it really without maximum rock and roll uh i don't know if punk would have lasted in the bay area as long as it has it would not have mm-hmm. i would say that it would not have Mm-hmm. So that helped spread the message and, and get the kids to realize that, uh, hey, on Friday and Saturday, we know where to go. Yes. I mean, we have something important. You know, Gilman, Gilman initially, um, Tim Yohannan was, you know, he, he was an old lefty, you know, and he, um, you know, he was, a, a, you know, a bit of a commie, you know, like, you know, he's a Berkeleyite, you know, he didn't, uh, he, he, he was part of the Workers' Party, I think, you know, and, and like, he didn't, um, he didn't want to advertise the shows at Gilman, uh, at, at the beginning. He, he wanted, if you're going to come down here and you're going to be part of this community, the, the person who sweeps up after the shows is as important as the person on the microphone, right? It was definitely this collectivist, I guess, socialist kind of idea behind the whole thing. Uh, so interesting. Uh, you put it that way because, uh, in your movie, that person is the singer for rancid, but yes. Right, 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 right. Yeah, he's the singer for Answer, who went on to be multi-platinum. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the point that the point was is that you you had to you had to figure it out for yourself. You had to pass the barriers. You had to be that dedicated to figure out where to go. Is is what uh, Johanna was trying to? Uh, I think so. Here. Yeah. I think so. It's like if you you know if you want to be part of it, you got to put in the effort. Right. You know? Right. Um, right. 
You know, which is, I don't know if that's the portrait of inclusivity, to be honest with you, you know? No, but that is the DIY ethic, which uh, you know, is. is a big part of, of, of the punk uh, manifesto, if you will. There was the argument years later where, you know, when Green Day broke in, in 1994, where everyone's like, well, this, suddenly this music that was sacred to me, this community that was sacred to me, you know, you've got all these people that are from the malls that are coming to our clubs and, and coming to our shows. And then you're like, yeah, well, what about that one weirdo queer kid in like, in, in Texas who, you know, in a, in a rural Texas town who's, who goes to the mall and he gets that record and it changes his brain and suddenly he doesn't feel so alone in the world, you know? Yeah. There is something to ha making uh, making art and music uh, wide and available too, you know? Right. Um, but there's also something, you know, the old, what's the old punk adage? I think the queers, right? What we, or not the queers, the, the germs. What we do is secret, right? Right. You know? It's like, so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, and I guess there's there's something to, to be trying to keep it as pure as possible. And, uh, you know, let's face it, only a few of these bands, you know, get onto uh, that sort of platform. Most do keep it, uh, you know, sacred. You know? Yeah. I mean, you know, I think what Gilman taught a lot of people who played art and music was that, you know, if this was something that you wanted to do, you should do it for self-enrichment. You should do it. Mm. Uh, because you want to share what you're doing. And if somebody is inspired by it, then both of you feel less in, alone in the world. Somebody understands your message and then, uh, you know, and then you feel understood, you know? Right. But, and so you'll see a lot of these people who were in Gilman back in the day who aren't playing arenas, who are still playing to this day, uh, who are still playing shows because what a hobby, you know? What a cool thing to do, like to like continue to play music and put out records and go on, you know, these little tours where you have friends in each town, uh, these kind of small circuits, you know, uh, there are people who still enjoy doing that. And I think that that is a, a very valuable thing, you know, a very fun thing to do. You know? uh, Almost like the minstrels of old. Yeah. Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. Or fo fo a folk mentality, yeah. I guess. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, like yourself. I think you you've been a a, a satirical folky. Is that right? Yeah, uh, yeah that's a satiric folk rock since 1995. Uh, you know, initially when just like Green Day, when we went to go play Gilman, they were like, "No way, you're not punk," and we we're like, "We but we but we cuss <laughs> all the time." You know, we cuss oh. all the time, and we talk about the end of the world and politics, and and then uh, before you knew it, you know, we we wound up being able to play there around I think 95, 96. And then by 2000, we were headliners there. You yeah. Know? Wow. It took us a couple of years for them to be able to, you know, say, okay, you know. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it's, um, I mean, inclusivity is important, and I think, I think that initial, that initial, uh, if you look at the pictures of a lot of the kids in the '86, '87, '88, uh, you know, the beginning of Gilman, they're not wearing costumes. They're just wearing like frumpy suburban Mervyn's clothes. They're not like. You know, they don't have the big hair and they're like, some of them do, but uh, they're mostly just kids from, Lashkey kids from broken homes. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's a much less fashion going on in the East Bay punk scene than there was yeah. in London and New York and even LA, yeah. certainly. Yeah, uh, completely. It's, um, you know, I mean, a lot of the, the purveyors of this culture, you know, Jesse Michaels, his um, you know, father was a science fiction writer and a professor at Berkeley. I think Aaron Commentbus's Aaron Commentbus's mother was. She's got textiles in the Smithsonian. You know, these are you know, and then but then you've got like Green Day and and, and um, 
you know, coming from Rodeo where their, their parents are truck drivers and waitresses, you know, and, and isocracy. And, and when you get this melding of those worlds of this intellectualism and this kind of common voiced, these, and it comes together, I think that created something very special and then wound up kind of impacting the world ultimately, Uh, not to, to over, oversell it. (laughs) No, no, I think you're absolutely right. And I think that is uh, one of the, that was, I should say, one of the great aspects of this, uh, d- you know, pluralistic, uh, diversified country that we used to have uh, yeah. in, in where these various strata were sort of forced to interact with each other much more than than today. And, right. uh, yeah. you know, I, I, I think, uh, <clears throat> you know, through that. You you evolve you you be you 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 progress yeah. and which is what I I think that's the point of any society when you get right down to it. You it know? is you know there, there was this uh, label that came out of Gilman early on called Very Small Records and they did a shirt and it, on the back it says race mixing is cool yeah right and it, it, it's like the idea that and so it's class mixing you know yeah it's like it's like really if we do want to reach that kind of one world idea of. Of, of you know Star Trek or a peaceful planet, we're yeah. gonna all have to figure out a way to get along, right? And I think Gilman was that kind of trying to be that ideal kind of utopic, you know. Uh, uh, it was it, it tried, and it was its glimpse. We always get these glimpses of that, and and I, I've been lucky to experience that a few times in my life, and then something will screw it up. <laughs> you know? it's, it's almost like some powers are trying to keep us apart. Uh, you think? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, let's talk a little bit about the tape compilations, because obviously that is also a big part of this, was yeah. to trade these tapes along with these zines. And I think uh, Get Off My Guts, uh, uh, Not oh, yeah. So Quiet on the Western Front, uh, were, were two of the bigger ones that, uh, yeah. that you mentioned in the movie. So I, I think early on, you know, um, for me at least, whenever my band recorded and put out something, being able to hold that in my hand, suddenly, suddenly I felt legitimate. So a lot of these kids who were just recording on a four track in their garage, suddenly they're on a vinyl record or they're on this like this tape that's being distributed, you know, in, in mail order all over the country, all over the world. And suddenly people know about their cruddy little band that's never even played a show sometimes, you know, uh, it, 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 it legitimized a lot of these kids. It made them, it made it feel less mystified. You know, you look at the the lights on a stage and the amplified nature of, you know, singing through a microphone and it all just seems so big, you know? Yeah. And, it, yeah. It, it can be intimidating. Uh, right. and, and especially if it's, you know, one of these, highly professionalized uh, sure. uh, acts uh, where, you know, it takes, you know, an inordinate amount of skill and, and practice to get to. Right. I mean, I just think that the, the, these early compilations, they demystified the aura of unattainability around the whole thing. They made it, they made these kids feel like anything was possible. Like, you know, how important that was to just feel legitimized by being on a, on a release, you know, and then you would, listen to one of these things and you would hear 20, 30 bands that you've never heard before. And then you would be inspired, you know, to start a band, you know, right, right. and like, and you would just learn and learn and learn and absorb and absorb and absorb. And I think that that's how the culture here lit fire so fast. Yeah. And, and to your point, you know, you've mentioned this a couple of times and I, and I want to bring it up again. Uh, Gilman street is still happening. It's still it there. Is. 
You know, that's crazy. That's that's fantastic. That's it's amazing. So, um, you know, so now, we, you know, we've identified the zines. You know, I definitely want to talk a little bit about Aaron Comet Bus because he yep. was, you know, the, the poet that uh, that came out of this. Uh, yes. And um, uh, and then also uh, uh, the DMR, the, the that feminine oh. side of things. <laughs> the, the, so so uh, Durant Mob Rules, uh, they they were also very big in the whole Ruthie's um, metal scene too, but you know, they were, they were punks. So Aaron Comet bus was uh, a kid who uh, started documenting punk culture in the Bay area. At, at, like, at like 14. At 14. Yeah. yeah. And maybe even earlier him and <laughs> him and Jesse Michaels. And then they started, then he started bands and then he started, you know, writing fiction in these, in these zines and doing, along with scene reports and suddenly um now it's just he's printed in a million languages and all over the world and he's writes books and still co prints comet bus and uh he and he and he would make these compilations get off my guts or uh what 20 berkeley bands or, you know and he was a musician a writer an artist and more importantly an archivist mm -hmm. you know he was the one who would basically say Oh, you guys played some songs in your in your garage. I'm going to come over and I'm going to record you. And suddenly the kids were like, "What?" And you know, then they were a real band. He would he would engineer that kind of stuff because he wanted a scene too, you know. Yeah. So uh, he was very very integral to that early scene. Now Durant, Durant Mob Rules DMR. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I don't know of this phenomenon. There, I'm sure it's happened before. But when I heard about this, I was transfixed by it. Um, this group of girls who uh, were, were fed up with with uh, being, you know, attacked and, and raped harassed and, and, and yeah, harassed. Yeah. And, uh, they wound up becoming the biggest shit kickers in the whole area. They became the most tough, ga feared gang. They would fight skinheads. They would. Um, they took no. They took no guff, man. Uh, and I oh, I, I, re I remember them from that movie, The Warriors. Yeah, <laughs> right, 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 right. I just they they were uh, they people were people feared them, and I don't know about oh. that. From you've got these this group of of like these are young girls, yeah, but they would knock people's teeth out. I just don't. I don't know that phenomenon really. Yeah, you ever uh, seen a girl fight? Man, uh, they're yeah. ruthless. Yeah, I mean, in, in <laughs> gangs that were just like would come into a club and then suddenly, like, uh, I just thought it was like, wow, I'm so proud that that's from where we're from. <laughs> you know, like it's such a cool, a cool thing. Uh, but they also too, they they were artists. They did flyers. They put on shows. They were also involved in the community too. But uh, they would also get in there and uh, and scrap it up. They would lead the scrap a lot of times. So right. Right, right. All right. So, yeah, um, uh, you know, like we said, we, we, we started over uh, uh, over in San Francisco with uh, the Mubehe uh, Gardens, but then it does move over to the East Bay. And and right. I'm, I'm going to get to Ruthie's here pretty quickly. But but you do spend some time with the geography of the East Bay from from Berkeley kind of heading that north east uh, out there. So let, let's talk a little bit about that, especially. El Sobrante. Is it still as redneck <laughs> as it used to be? <laughs> uh, so I went, I went to, my dad graduated from De Anza and El Sobrante. Uh, you had, you know, Kirk Hemet was from there. 
Uh, I thought it was very culturally interesting that members of Green Day, uh, Mike Jern lived in uh, in El Sobrante, members of Primus, they have songs about El Sobrante. I think Primus has like two or three songs about El Sobrante. Um, Jerry was a race car driver. He say El Sob number one. You know, uh, <laughs> right. uh, uh, you know, uh, Hemet moved from the San Francisco to El Sobrante when his mom got a hairdresser job out there in El Sobrante. And, you know, he was a brown kid. You know, he was Filipino, part, Filipino, yeah, part white. Yeah. I and and they were just I thought it was culturally interesting that the same kind of racist you know, Peckerwood gang beat up, uh, attacked Metallica, Primus, and, and Green Day, <laughs> decade after decade, as they because those are all three kind of different decades, you know. Well, I, I personally would like to thank them uh, for uh, toughening those boys up and turning yeah, them yeah, into yeah. the giant rock stars that they are today. Um, it, so, Elster Brandy is unincorporated, so yeah. there's no, there, there's just a sheriff. Um, is it? I mean, there's a large Sikh culture there now. Um, but, you know, there was a, a young black musician who was, you know, murdered outside of a, a bar not but two or three years ago there. Um, it It is a bit backwards. The truth is, though, you've got a lot of these hubs in that place where you've got professors who, you know, work at Berkeley who bought a house there in El Sobrani. So there's these little pockets of intellectualism around it peppered with all of these kinds of you know, uh, uh, Northern California kind of rednecks, you know, yeah. Yeah. You know? and yeah. so um, it, it, it still does have that, in, in my opinion, it, I mean, God, what? No, actually, what am I talking about? L uh, last year, uh, some guy was all over the news. Uh, he built a big concrete swastika in his front yard. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, 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 you know, you got like Jewish kids walking to school, passing it and stuff. And so we, we went out and protested it, you know, and like, and it's like, it, uh, so yeah, yeah, I don't know. It, and Still redneck. <laughs> 10 minutes from Berkeley. Yeah. 10 minutes. Yeah, yeah. You know, uh, so yeah, so it still is like that. You know, we, we went from, in our film, we went Oakland, uh, Berkeley. I think we went to Albany. Uh, then you've got El Cerrito, Richmond, which is a lot of industrial stuff. There wasn't a lot going on there. San Pablo. Uh, but then we, we jumped to El Cerrito, Panol uh rodeo and rodeo, you know yeah and rodeo yeah. and and those were um definitely we wanted to show you know uh there were bands in each of those places and then suddenly when gilman opened there was this convergence from all of those different places you know mm -hmm. and uh even though they're very close they're very different and and so that and then like i said they the gilman opened and everybody came together they finally had a place that they could create together and uh, yeah. not get arrested in their garage, you know, too, playing too late. <laughs> right, right. Well, before we get to that, there, there is Ruthie's that uh, yeah. plays prominent. Uh, and as we've already said, you know, comes uh, to both uh, the punk and the thrash metal scene. So, so, so yeah, I would say that, uh, I mean, Wes was there even before them in Buhay. Yeah, uh, Wes, doing, Wes was, Robinson, right? Yeah. yeah, Wes was, he did shows at the Rio Theater. And then he did um, some shows in Berkeley at Aido's, and he was looking for a, a venue to kind of place his roots. Again, he did stuff for Sun Ra and all these jazz like with Miles Davis and stuff. He was a very eclectic person, you know. And uh, then he saw the punk thing at the Mabuhe. Uh, I think he one of the early shows, and he 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 saw the Mutants. That's right, he saw the band the Mutants, and he was like. He was blown away by this, mm. and he just knew he had to do something. So he brought he brought everything to the East Bay. 
And, uh, but he did a precursor show, I think in late 76, early 77. Anyways, sorry, I'm tangent here. Uh, Ruthie's was really, it wasn't a punk club in the same way that Gilman was. Uh, but, you know, it was, it, it, there was no volunteering. Gilman was mostly volunteering. Um, there was no, you know, it, it was, it was pay at the door. Yeah. You know, it, it didn't have the same structure. A, stand, um, a standard type of club situation. Yeah. Where you, and again, you know, there was, there was, there was, uh, you know, drinking and wildness and, you know, dangerous heavy metal, like wild, fun, badass stuff going on. Um, and some of the punk bands, I think Operation Ivy played there, but there was not a lot of the Gilman bands played there. You know, um, they it, it was more. I think a lot of Southern California bands oh, would come up, up. Yeah, would come up like especially suicidal. Suicidal. Yeah. Yes, yeah. They really, they really when they, and they, you know, there might not be a similar sound with bands like them and Slayer, you know, or Testament, but there's a similar uh, aggression, you know. Oh. And so, I- their yeah. bass player is now a Metallica, so yeah. Right, right, right. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> he was in Infectious Grooves too, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. Yeah. Yeah. So, so yeah, no. So they they really uh, that 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 place was was there. I don't know. It it that place and New Method were open before Gilman, but again, they kept shuttering. They kept money problems or something would happen or, and um, and I think it was hard for West to keep going because punk rock isn't a you know, you know, music isn't a very lucrative business when you're a promoter, typically, you know. No, no. Um, so, uh, but yeah, no, it, 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 again, I, I, would, I wouldn't say that Ruthie's was a punk club. I think it was a metal club that hosted some punk bands. I, other people might disagree with me. Mm. Um, but, uh, you know, also, too, like I said, it was 21 and over. Yeah. So there was really no place. You either had to have a fake ID uh, or, or you couldn't come in, you know? So, um, yeah, but very important, very integral, very, uh, I mean, uh, murder, murder in the front row. I mean, that, 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 yeah, that, that's their Mecca. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. It shows, I mean, you're, it's the same kind of thing. You've got, you know, green day rancid, you know, all, uh, you know, no effects, all, all these huge punk bands coming out of Gilman and you've got, all of these huge metal bands coming out of out of Ruthie's and, and the crossover movement, you know, yeah. and they're just a couple so, of miles apart. Yeah. And they're just a couple of miles apart. I mean, it's uh, yeah, I love, I love the Bay area. <laughs> yeah. Ah, same <laughs> here. Same here. So, yeah. So let's, let's get to Gilman. So, uh, you know, just give us the story on, on how that, uh, that came about. So as far as I know, um, there were two different groups that were looking for a place to, to open a club. Um, there were, the, uh, pizza places and, and abandoned warehouses, people were hosting shows and they just kept getting shut down. Uh, and so there were two different groups of people that wanted to open a legitimate club. Tim Yohannan from Maximum Rock and Roll wanted to do it, but he really wanted to do it in, in San Francisco. Uh, Victor Hayden and Kamala Parks wanted to open one. They wanted it to be in the East Bay. So they went to this, this part of Berkeley that is now full of like coffee shops and boutique pizza yeah but at the time it was just old warehouses it was old warehouses in like uh you know uh, uh, packs of dogs running around you know and, and trains you know uh and so they found this place and it was cheap and this guy uh jim Winnis, uh still owns it today uh had like a basket weaving shop in the back of it and he was like look i'll rent it to you guys for cheap you know 
And so Kamala, who was involved in the maximum rock and roll scene, and Victor, who um, owned a record label and was involved in the music scene, went to Tim and they said, Tim, you got to see this. And he was like, no, I'm not coming across. I'm not going to the bridge, over the bridge. I'm not, this is malarkey. I'm, there's no way I'm going to do this. You know, Such a San Francisco attitude. Right, right, right. So, so, but he went over and he saw it and he was sold. Yeah. And uh, then, you know, there was, there was the ground rules, you know, it was like everybody, you had to be a member. You had to buy a membership card. It was like two bucks for a membership card or something, you know, and, uh, initially there was the no flyering policy, but that changed very soon after, uh, you know, but, but the idea was there was, um, no sexism, no racism, no homophobia, no drinking, no drugs, no violence, no dogs. And the reason no dogs is because the sound hurts their ears. Uh, you know, so Think, uh, looking yeah. out for the dogs, right? Yeah. So, and you know, a, a lot of the people, uh, from the old guard, you know, thought it was a very square kind of setup, but, uh, I think that the kids that were there, it became theirs. Like suddenly, I, I think people talk about it in our movie, punk was going in waves. And after, you know, the end of the seventies, there was this dip down and it wasn't popular anymore, Yeah. you know? Yeah. And so suddenly there was these kids who were still inspired by it mm -hmm. and, Again, they inject new ideas, new energy into it. And then whether anybody likes it or not, it becomes theirs. Long, like, like I said, longest gestation period of any rock and roll genre uh, that right. has come, come about. Yeah, 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 yeah. It, uh, I mean, you know, I mean, you know, the Ramones and the Clash were on major labels, right? But, but they weren't pop stars. They didn't sell shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. They yeah, may have been yeah. in a movie or one or two or, right. you know, but uh, but yeah. It, it, yeah. And I, I really feel bad for the Ramones because, I mean, they don't even become like successfully financial until half of them or three quarters of them are right. dead. Well, until, the, <laughs> until that 90s boom when everybody started yeah. kind of giving them the nod. Yeah, you know? yeah. He said, no, no, these were the originators. Yeah, definitely. yeah, yeah. 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 No, no, it's no. true. Yeah. And, you know, the offspring even they would come up from from uh, Kamala Parks would host them, and they were you know a yeah, vicarious the county band right right but they but they loved Gilman Gilman was their second home you oh, know yeah so so when it all happened it was like it was this big deal where like oh Green Day uh, you know offspring rancid. It was, it was suddenly the the pop flavor of the early nineties. Yeah, I, you had people like Fugazi come through. Uh, right. I think um, uh, Dave Grohl uh, in one of his early bands yep. uh, was through. Uh, Scream, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it was, you know, it, it just became a, a mecca of uh, you know this this um, uh, like I said earlier uh, a, a lighter form of punk, not not you know so testosterone fueled yeah uh, you know and there there was and there were uh, and it was much more eclectic uh you know you've mentioned uh, a couple of the bands that uh you know played more uh, dance or soft music and in fact uh, in the movie you know you make a point and which you know blew me away i i couldn't even think that uh, green day would be told no you can't play here because you're not punk enough <laughs> <laughs> i know i know i mean it it uh it's interesting because I think I like to believe that at the beginning of punk, if you see it, the germs and, and you know, uh, X and the Clash and the Ramones and, you know, the Dead Kennedys and the Avengers, a lot of these early and Flipper, these bands were really weird and artful. Yeah. Even the Ramones, people would, would talk about the Ramones walking, they used to practice, I guess, in an art gallery and they would walk by and hearing that kind of dissonance that, that music played at that speed was just, wasn't just loud and caustic, it was just weird. It yeah. was weird. Yeah. And 
So I like to believe well, that. Well, just, just look at them. I mean, they are a fucking cartoon. Yes, you know? they are. <laughs> yes, yes, absolutely. Uh, but just, I like to think of the early punk as weird. And then suddenly in the 80s, you know, more of the suburban kids started coming out. You know, young men whose dads, you know, weren't kind to them. And they come out and they want to let out their aggression. And then, you know, um, whereas I don't believe that bands like Black Flag and the Descendants, you know, were kind of, uh, you know, uh, harvesting that they certainly were a soundtrack for that aggression right oh yes and and, and then you know you that that happens and then suddenly things kind of die down right yeah, yeah. and then well, i've been i've been to a few riots myself uh in right. that la scene with black flag and fear right. and uh you know uh, and i almost saw a uh a circus tent get burned down one night uh, at a fear concert so i mean uh, noodles from uh from offspring and, and and fat mike from no effects told us stories of growing up in los angeles and you know, seeing people get stabbed and yeah. like, and, yeah. and like it was oh, no, like, it was serious shit. Yeah, 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 yeah. crazy. Yeah. And I think of Gilman, and I'm like, what? <laughs> yeah. no, like it was, it was. They used to call it romper room. They used to call it romper room for punks. They they were like, Gilman is just kid shit. You know, there's just nothing about it that's cool. And I mean, honestly, I, when I think about all all the amazing art and culture that come out of that. Um, I'm like, hey, you know, sometimes rules are kind of cool. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, you know, you allowed, uh, you know, we, we've talked about uh, that this was, uh, there was some female empowerment that was going on early yeah. on. Um, yeah. uh, you know, uh, that was uh, definitely uh, a, a big deal. Uh, you know, DMR, uh, we talked about. Um, you see girls. We, we, we didn't yeah. mention that Wes Robinson was an African-American yeah. gentleman. Uh, you have the Bean Nigs, for example. Yeah. Yep. Uh, talk a little bit about that. So that, you know, it, it was. It, there was no racism, no sexism, yeah. no homophobia. These, these were all accepted life values in Absolutely. this club. Well, see, so Michael Franti uh, and the Beatniks, and then later the Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy, they they would go, they would come, and they would play Gilman, and they were they would bash on metal and and you know uh, recite poetry, and and they would do that alongside Operation Ivy, and uh, for a rock against racism racism benefit, you know early on it was uh, MDC, Dead Kennedys, and Whoopi Goldberg doing a rock against racism show yeah. in San Francisco, you know? So this was just kind of like a, a, a furthering of an that. An extension of that, yeah. yeah. Yeah, an extension of that, you know? Uh, but certainly, I mean, it, was, it wasn't it was all white kids, you know? It wasn't all white straight kids, you know? It wasn't no. all, all or, white Or guys, kids. yeah. Guys, yeah. yeah. The uh, Yeasty Girls. The Yeasty Girls, right? <laughs> yeah, Michael Franti speaks in our film about uh, how they played uh, Iron Man on a tampon. Uh, <laughs> Right. Yeah. So, I mean, there was a lot of uh, people felt safe to create and to be themselves. Yeah. And when you get and when that happens, I think something special happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I think we both admit that that something special was Green Day. I mean, they I mean, out of this romper room, if you will, yeah. Uh, yeah. comes yeah. one of the biggest bands that has ever been in rock and roll. You know, it's interesting. Uh, we during our—I don't think I've told this story before, but you know, we did—we did a lot of archive searching, and one day we wound up happening across a board recording of the first time that they got to play Gilman, right? And this is after them trying to play Gilman, you know, for like a year, going to Gilman, participating, yeah. 
Yeah. Keep, keep getting told no. Watching, no. watching shows, you know, <laughs> getting told no. And the idea is if you come and you participate, you're supposed to be able to play. Yeah. You know, I believe now, again, there could be some people that disagree with me, but that Johannan was enough of a student of, of, of music. He loved all kinds of music. He didn't just love punk. When I heard the board recording that nobody had, we, the Green Day, I don't think that they, they had heard it. Uh, I know that their crew hadn't heard it and our production team hadn't heard it. We played it over these big speakers, the Green Day studio. And uh, it was just me and I think the director of photography and, uh, and the co-writer. And we were playing it and suddenly, you know, some of Green Day's tour folks and recording folks come through and they're like, who is this? And I was just envisioning, imagining myself in that room. If I were Tim Yohannan and I heard how good they were, I would go, and I, and I wanted to keep what I did secret, I would say, no, 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 no. you guys are going to be fine. Like, you don't need this. But the fact of it is, is they did need, they yeah. did need that. They did need a community. They did need a stage, you know. Mm -hmm. They did need a place to grow and flourish, you know. But that's my, that's my take on it, because when I heard that board recording, and anybody else who was, you know, who knew that band was heard it. You just imagine being in that room. You're just like, and my first reaction was, "Holy shit!" Like, we're used to hearing shitty music, <laughs> right? <laughs> shitty music. Yeah. We hear good music, but yeah. uh, great music even. But we're used to hearing a lot of shitty music. Yeah. And when I heard that, and how young they were, um, not to go on and on about it, um, I believe that that, but that was one of the main reasons why Johannan didn't have them play initially because he could hear the potential that in they, them. maybe they were too good for uh the uh the, what was around at that moment uh, before well, they were I, allowed to play I, I mean, if you think about johannan at the beginning of gilman he he didn't want flyers for the shows mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. so on a certain level he didn't want to blow the spot up right he didn't he oh, he, he oh i see you know, here you, now yeah you no know, you know that 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 uh, uh, you know once once you, these kinds of things typically will have a lifespan, right? Yeah, yeah. They, 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 yeah. they typically have a lifespan, and, yeah, and, and about five years. You know, David right, Bowie right. said and, it right. You know, five years. That's that's what you got, and uh, that right. is uh, that is the case usually. Right. Yeah, I, I just I don't know. I I believe that um, they were so good, and that Johannan heard it. And he was kind about it, but he was like, no, 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 you're too poppy. No, yeah. no, no. Yeah, yeah. He, he could hear it because when I heard that, 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 that recording, I, I heard it. The first time. The first time. The first, the first, the first gig. Did, what year was that? That was, uh, I think they wound up, their first show being the end of 87, beginning of 88, if I'm not mistaken. The club had just reopened. So it closed down. Tim Yohannan left, took his, took his toys and left. And... And then uh, a group of people slowly reopened it with his blessing, mm -hmm. you know. And I think that's in some ways maybe what he wanted, you know. If if you're a if you're a real collectivist or you know a, a, you know good old American commie or whatever, you know, and you're all about you know communes and community and things like this, you kind of want to see it flourish without you. Yeah, hand it off to the next generation. Yeah, and so uh, yeah, so Green Day was obviously. I mean, I, Operation Ivy. To be fair. They were the ones who put the spot on the map, you know. Mm -hmm. They, 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 uh, Ransom came out of that band, you know. Yeah. yeah. Uh, well, I would say Operation Ivy, you know, they became platinum after they were already broken up, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, that band changed everything. And I think it, it, uh, it inspired Green Day. It inspired 
you know, a, a million other bands. But then Green Day came in right after the end of, they played Operation Ivy's last show, you know? Right. And, and, and I believe that they took that torch and they ran with it and never stopped running. And that, uh, that brings up uh, Lookout Records, uh, right. you know, and, and how that was like the, the entry into the, the recording side of, uh, of things. I, I think that, you know, a lot of times people will say that you start a record label because you hope to sell records, you know. I think in other instances, uh, I think with Lookout Records with, you know, uh, Larry Livermore and David Hayes, they started it because they didn't want that music to get lost in that moment. They wanted to, they thought everything that was happening was very special. So if you were in a band and you were participating, they would make every effort to make you a record, you know? Mm -hmm. So they could kind of preserve the moment, preserve yeah. the time. Document it, right. Document it, yes, to document mm -hmm. the scene, you know, mm -hmm. um, that everybody was so excited about, you know? And never in a million years did they even think that these bands would get big. You know? <laughs> no, no. It's just some special thing to them. There's you know? just no way you would think that, uh, you know, at, given the time, uh, that this would turn into you know, pop <laughs> pop sensations of some sort. Well, they didn't know. How, they didn't know how. I mean, it, it got big quick. Yeah. Uh, Operation Ivy was really the first big hit. And then as soon as Green Day hit, then everybody would go back to to look out and see this other whole other world, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I think that's kind of like with our movies. A lot of people will watch this documentary thinking it's a Green Day documentary. And there's a lot of Green Day in it, but they're like, what? This is, so I mean, it's a lot. Our movie's a lot, you know? So if you want to do deep digs and find new bands, you can watch this film and you can you can see, find a lot, you know? Um, oh, it is. It's an, it's a, it's a, it's an extremely dense Film, yes. yeah, uh, yeah. you know, uh, it, 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 it is, you know, not just the stars, you know, but it, it is the uh, the associate players uh, that are, are, are represented as well. Absolutely. And, you know, a lot of that stuff is, is still available. But yes, I mean, Green Day really, they uh, they took it and they ran, man. And uh, but, you know, they always they always they always give back to home. You know, they always come home. It's always something man. They, they either that they're donating sound equipment to the club or doing a benefit for I people think the guys the guys still live here in the area right they do all three of them yeah yep that's pretty amazing it, yeah it, yeah it, and in fact i think uh how uh trey cool gets in the band is he's a neighbor of uh of lawrence livermore uh who created lookout records right that's correct yeah so so larry had lookout magazine uh, up in the hills of Willits in Northern California. And the first lookout record was the lookouts record. Um, and then he, he would start traveling down to Gilman when it opened up because, you know, Larry used to live in San Francisco and then Gilman happened and he saw that it was exciting. He met David Hayes and they put out what was called the first four, which was mm -hmm. Operation Ivy, Isocracy, Corrupted Morals and Crypt Shrine. Uh, those are the first four. right yeah yeah so those are the first four you know seven inches that they put out and like um yeah so but but trey was in the lookouts was in larry's band and was his neighbor up in willets and um you know uh the early green day drummer john kiffmeyer was going to go to college and uh you know trey says that he was like hey you should you should take my spot in this band while i'm in college you know is what i heard yeah you know uh, uh, I think that, you know, a lot of people don't have those kind of uh, backup plans, you know, like 
they like you know they're they're, they're like you know and uh, you know but, uh, my but it, my understanding with talking to as many rock stars as I have is that there's usually no plan B. No, right, right, that's <laughs> true. But you know, also too, like you know, Green Day was they were seen outsiders. You know, when they were first coming in, and then they met John, who was in Isocracy, who was one of those the big early Gilman bands, mm-hmm. and he became their drummer. And suddenly they were playing shows everywhere. They were connected with everything. They were yeah. he had a he had a van, you know, yeah. which is the old joke, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> the drummer with a van, you know. So, uh, so uh, it's a good way to you keep know, your gig. <laughs> it is. It really is, right? But so, but then I think Trey comes in. And you just see this insane, raw, natural talent. And something just clicked. Yeah. Something just, uh, you know, and John is, you know, s- still friends with the band. He's still, you know, uh, you, you know, just a wonderful guy, you know. Uh, but Trey is like, he just, God, man, he's up there with the greats, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like, there's yeah, just no- yeah, he, 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 there, there, there is a uniqueness about him and a proficiency uh, that exists uh, as well. Uh, in fact, in a lot of ways, he 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 kind of reminds me with a little more discipline, uh, a Keith Moon type character. Yes. Yeah, I agree. I was going to say that. Yeah. I mean, he's so clatter bashing, but he hits so hard and like yeah. um, just just nuts, man. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But, but yeah, they really became a, 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 a solid rock unit when when he came in. And uh, I think it was just at that point, there was just no stopping him. Yeah. You know, they just. That was it. No, I, and you know, I, again, I, I, to me, uh, this always comes down to the songs, uh, and Billy Joel's just uh, oh, yeah. an amazing songwriter. So, Absolutely. Uh, you know, and and I, you just can't you can't survive very long without having somebody like that uh, in right. the band. You know, uh, you're 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 not going to have a twenty year career uh, or more uh, with without somebody like that. So it's funny that the, the two Armstrongs from the scene, Tim Armstrong and Billy Joe Armstrong, are like they're 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 just are they are music to me. I see those guys; they always have a guitar with them, no matter where they go. There are they're just so kind of they just they just exude music. It's so hard to explain. Like mm, yeah. um, it, it flows you know, Billy, from every pore. Oh, dude, it's just like who, it's just so much who they are that yeah. like uh, they're they're both so intense and, and talented. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, we've talked about, uh, you know, uh, the feminine aspects, uh, anti-racism. And uh, and that leads me to the fact that there's really only one villain in this movie, and it's the fucking skinheads. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's uh, my favorite. My, my favorite line is that yeah, and we attacked the skinheads, and they went fuck all back to Concord or wherever they. Came from. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> it's uh, yeah. So you know, I was talking about a lot of those kind of you know suburban young white guys who you know who probably had you know abuse at home and things like that. They kind of go into the whole nationalist skinhead movement and. And then they think, oh, we're going to go and, and uh, you know, beat up some queer kids or some long hairs or some punks or some weirdos or whatever. Is that the problem with our president? Is that the problem? Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it, 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 they all feel impulsive. Is it daddy issues? Is that the problem? Oh, that's certainly it. You know, uh, what is it? Uh, uh, Woody Guthrie wrote a song called Old Man Trump about that's Trump's right. dad. That's right. I know. I know. You know is that it's, amazing it's like, or what? <laughs> yeah, it must be, man. It, it, it really, yeah. I mean, they all get emboldened by that guy and they come out from under their rocks like salamanders, you know? But well, at least, at least now we know who they are so we can pick them off when we see them. It's true. It's very true. Yeah. No, I have a, I have a really 
I mean, of course, you're supposed to have a, an aversion to like racist skinheads, but I have this thing where I can't. I uh, I know a lot of people were like, yeah, I hate them, this, that, and the other. But I have like a couple. I was involved in like the Gilman scene of the of the mid to late '90s, you know, and uh, I would tour, and I've got scars, and I don't know why. why I just, uh, it's not even that I've been hurt by them, but I've seen them hurt people. And I just have this, Indiana Jones told us, man, Nazis, not, I hate yeah. those guys. I mean, I'm pretty sure no. we had a big giant war about them. Yes, uh, we did. Because we did. they were horrible. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> we, we can I don't understand why we're still dealing with that. We can agree that that that, that kind of pestilence is not free speech. No. It, it's not, it, it is it is anti-human. No. And and it is, and, and, it, and so... The Gilman kids were, you know, this kind of idyllic, you know, they have this, they're trying to keep their, their, their sacred utopia, you know, and these kids start coming in and messing things up. And before you know it, these skinny, scrappy little kids had enough. And as this, it, it, it doesn't go too much into it at, at, in our film, but some of the other stories were that uh, MDC, Dave from MDC, and there were these um, Caprera dancers who came down from a, uh, a reggae club down the street called Ashkenaz, which is like a block or two away from Gilman. Mm -hmm. And they had like Caprera sticks. So suddenly people who are in this melee are telling me stories that not only did you have all these like white suburban punk kids out there, but you had like these black Caprera dancers with like huge sticks beating the crap out of these Nazis. Nice. And to me, it was just beautiful. I mean, I hear this, and it's just beautiful. And and like, it, it uh, sounds like Black Panther uh, for uh, to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. but yeah, they uh, they cracked up this brand new red truck that they had, and they never came back. Yeah, they okay. did not mess with Gilman again. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, I don't know what it is that causes that exactly, but I do know that we need to fight it at every turn. And that was one of the, it was funny, our film was released around the time of, uh, of Charlottesville. Mm. And people, uh, a woman had tweeted about it. And she said, you know, it was a black woman. And she was like, this is what being an ally is about. This is like, this is, I, it's funny, I'm watching this in Charlottesville around the time, you know, of, mm. of, of that and seeing, you know, all these like mostly young white kids you know, doing this, you know, it's like, you, it's not enough to be, uh, uh, not racist. You have to be anti-racist. You have yeah. to, you have to, you know what I mean? It, it, yeah. it, especially in this country. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you especially know, we were born with an original sin that we have never, yeah. uh, really, um, dealt with. And, uh, you know, uh, we, 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 we keep, we keep, getting closer in these small little steps and, and we're not we're not willing to completely eliminate <sighs> and erase this uh this scourge uh and seven you know, seconds it, it it just takes yeah. little pieces i guess and and you know this this movie uh and what these kids were able to accomplish romper room or not yeah uh, is pretty extraordinary so absolutely so let me let me ask you about the film and 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 how you put it together. So sure. uh, uh, you know, um, uh, I, I believe it did start with uh, with a call from uh, Billy Joe Armstrong uh, asking yeah. for a favor. Yes, it did, and he he uh, said, "I'm looking for this Rosetta Stone of uh, of a Green Day show in in 1990 1991 in Oakland, 
Uh, everybody's there. Uh, you know, the guys from Neurosis, No Effects, Steve List. You can see everybody in the crowd. All the all the bands who are playing the show are at the show. Other bands are in the in the crowd, and it's just so community minded. It's in some uh, you know the backyard of a warehouse in Oakland. He knew I knew where to get it. I went and got it for him, and uh, I went and I knew a bunch of other punk archivists in the East Bay, and I gathered up about twenty or thirty other Green Day videos from back in the day, and I gave it to him, and he said, "This is fantastic. Thank you. It's like you're handing me our early history." Um, we're thinking about making a documentary about those old days. Do you know anybody who could do it? And I said, yeah, me. And he said, <laughs> he said, I think you're right. I'll talk to the band tomorrow. And I can only say that the reason that he, he thought that I could do it was he knew I had a penchant for taking on kind of wild eyed, very busy projects, you know, mm-hmm. and seeing them through, right. you know, not just, <laughs> not just saying, it's a big project. Yeah. 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 So, so, you know, and then four years later, you know, it was, uh, you know, 120 interviews uh, for 500 hours of footage, 20,000 f- photos and flyers that were scanned, and over 300 live performances that we transferred via video. Yeah. So that's a lot of archive material. You know, that's yeah. a lot of interview material. Uh, and they 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 uh, produced the whole thing. They allowed us. They gave us the freedom uh, to build and build. And they said, gather everything. Let's preserve this history. And then we started building building out our our kind of uh, our, our our timeline, our our story edit, if you will, mm-hmm. which is where basically you know we figured out we made this system in order to sift through the 500 hours of interview footage based on keywords and subjects, right? And we would put the keywords and subjects. We would time code a phrase or a you know somebody talking about so and so band at this venue in this year, or they're talking about skinheads and. Uh, you know, smoking dope, you know, at whatever. And we would put these into the thing and it would bring up every time code where something like that has been talked about. So this would give us the way to kind of sift through that much footage, you know? Yeah. Uh, so then we built, we started building this thing out, our story edit, and our story edit became five hours long. And uh, now, mind you, this isn't with photos or footage or music, this is people telling the story. You know, right. uh, this is our early narrative story edit. Uh, and so we had to make a decision. Well, this is, you know, we could get, we can tell like this complete, thorough story. Do we want to do a series? And I think all of our hearts were set on a, on a film, which, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's so hard because it's, it's, the movie's very long. It's two hours and 47 minutes, but I believe that, um, uh, it was so hard to cut so much mm-hmm. and not to tell the full story. So some part of me does wish that we could have done a series because because it can be more complete. Sometimes you wouldn't just see one person one time in the film. You know, there are so many elements of that. But um, overall, I think we were able to 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 cover it all and to uh, you know cover the major themes uh, that we wanted to cover in in a in a, uh, a thoughtful way. So. I, I agree, and uh, and it was fun too. Uh, you know, it, you kept the spirit of the uh, of this this unique um, uh, punk, uh, if you will, subculture. You know, as we, we we said, there's the the New York variety, the London sure. variety, the the L.A. variety, and sure. uh, and now the the San Francisco variety. And you know, <clears throat> hate to say it, but uh, 
It's that Gilman uh, Street just seems to eclipse all the rest when it's you funny. start it's looking funny. at it uh, from success standpoints and right. you know what 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 makes that and uh, you know I mean, what will live on. It wasn't there at the beginning. No, it wasn't. It wasn't no. at the birth. You know. No, no, but it, but it, it 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 was at the end, and it's all about winning the race, isn't it? You know, it's funny. It's true. It's true. I will say this though, like you know, people like Penelope or Cello or the people from Flipper or you know. Um, the people from LA, they all, you know, I think for a while they're like, Oh, that romper room thing or whatever. I think as you get older, you're just happy that it's still alive. Yeah. You're happy that, that part of what you did is still alive in that and that it's available for people to come to, you know, mm. and they all see it as a, I mean, Johnny Lydon wouldn't tell you that it's a continuation, you know, but, but, but Joey Ramone who embraced green day and embraced rancid and, uh, and, and, uh, you know, and Joe Strummer, who embraced them as well, they would tell you it's a continuation of what they did, yeah. you know? Yeah. So um, it, it's uh, Steve Jones would tell you it's a continuation. You know, uh, there's just a lot of, uh, it, it's all one big story in my in my opinion. Mm -hmm. uh, the story of punk isn't, you know, uh, just about, you know, the early days, it's, it, it's still going today. I mean, it's- uh, it, I, it's I think we need a lot more of it right now. Oh yeah. No, I think you're right. I mean, I, I don't know. It's, it's, I, I kept thinking, well, you know, at least a bunch of really good music will come out of the, the Trump era, you know, uh, a lot of protest music, but I think people are so, um, I mean, there's good music well, out there. I think a lot of people are in shock. Uh, oh, yeah. and, 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 you know, and that's, that's the first day. stage. Yeah, yeah. That's just the first stage. Um, yeah. and, but you know, now we are living in extraordinary times, uh, the like of which we haven't seen in you know decades, if not a century. I mean, think think about the slingshot effect for culture that's going to happen after this whole virus thing. Oh fuck yeah! You're right. You know, like it's going to be this it, pulling it back, pulling it back, and letting it go. Yeah. You know, well, I, one thing you can always count on America for yeah. is a fucking backlash. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and if Trump was a backlash to the African-American president, yeah. uh, imagine what the backlash is going to be for this motherfucker. Uh, hopefully it means we'll be, we'll all be in a Star Trek utopia. You know, hopefully it means we're moving toward that, that kind of, that true one, one world, you know? Uh, I mean, I'm not to get political, but I'm a, I'm a Bernie guy. I, I, I love I love him. I feel like he pushed the conversation. Oh, without doubt. Yes. It'll never be it'll never be the same. No. And I believe that in a good uh, way. Yes. Because of him. You yeah. know? He's yeah. the he's the best of that granola chomping, community minded, uh, you know, uh nebbish kind of, you know, ex teacher kind of politician that you know and and, and uh I just uh I, I I think the kids are inspired by him and the kids are tomorrow, you know? Yeah. And uh, I think that's the way we're moving, in spite of how scary everything is right now. No, and I and I think you can see that in your movie. So thank you. I applaud that's, you for that. Thank you very much. I mean, that's one of the things that 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 uh, that 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 club gave to me, and it gave to Green Day was a sense of belonging. Uh, it, it is it is more important now than ever for people to have a, a place to come in from the storm, even though we can't come together right now. <laughs> you know, uh, temporary. Uh, it'll be a it is temporary. <laughs> but it'll be, it'll be uh, far more important, you know, when the gates open, you know, and we all have to go out back into the world again. And hopefully a lot of those salamanders go back under their rock 
those racist salamanders, you know, like, you know, and uh, maybe we could put. Trump oh, we'll, on we'll just put, we'll put the DMR girls back on them. There we go. There they still kick ass. It's true. <laughs> Corbett Redford. Thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs and Rock. Uh, Christian, it's been a pleasure, man. Thank you so much. Big thanks to Corbett Redford. We had a great time, and I think I found a new friend over in the East Bay. You all know my love of punk, uh, coupled with my love of Prague and everything else in between. Um, so do grab uh, a copy of Turn It Around, the story of East Bay punk. Go to Amazon Prime or YouTube, iTunes, or best, go to eastbaypunk.com for all the info. All right, my little twofer of Bay Area music comes to a close. Hope you all enjoyed that trip. Um, like I said at the top, and with the last episode, with the perspective of time, there is more in common with these two musical genres than not. Of course, I hear all the hardcores out there screaming at the top of their lungs telling me I'm an idiot. But, you know, certainly back in 1980, you'd be pressed to choose uh, one or the other. Um, but I've never been that kind of guy. I, I like what I like, and I'm not going to dislike something just because someone says I have to choose. Uh, life's too short, and why choose when you can have it all? Certainly, that made me uncommitted, even back in the day. And I'll admit, uh, perhaps I missed something by not picking a side and sticking with it, but um, I just wasn't built that way. And while I probably missed something at the time, uh, you know, in the long view, this attitude has served me well. I can enjoy all the music, always have, uh, for what it is and not have to worry about being put in a box or keeping myself in a box, that is. I, you know, I, I see a lot of my Hesher friends uh, at less than metal shows these days and vice versa. Uh, in the end, rock and roll in all its various forms usually has something redeeming about it. Usually, I, I guess there are a few acts and artists, uh, even I'm not sure about, um, Gigi Allen comes to mind. Uh, what I loved about these two films is the obvious love each comes within it. Uh, it would have been very easy to take the interviewees and slap them into the other film, and you wouldn't even notice the difference. Everyone in both films speaks with the same passion and verve. Both audiences loved as fervently as the other. Both were as passionate and committed to their scene as the other, and probably are still as passionate. God bless them. Keep that music alive. Okay, that's it for this week. Next week, we have a very big name for you. Prepare. Uh, I had the opportunity to 
do a very long form interview with Mick Jones, a foreigner, uh, and that will be coming uh, to you next week. After that, we have uh, Doug Cosmo Clifford of Creedence Clearwater Revival, and then Tal Wilkenfeld, bassist extraordinaire. Uh, so please, you want to come back for all of those. Until then, stay safe, and always, keep up the rockin'. If there was ever a time to stand together, if there was ever a time, it's tonight. If there was ever a time to hold your brothers and your sisters, then the time is right. If there was ever a time to stand together, if there was ever a time, it's tonight. If there was ever a time to hold your brothers and your sisters, then the time is right. Well, we gathered the DuPont Circle, and we gathered in Jack London Square, and we dropped that train train. Deeper Digs is hosted by Christian Swain. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios. Engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at PantheonPodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.